Welcome back to the Earn Your Edge podcast. I'm Corey Lumberg from Altos Performance, and this week we've got a conversation between Cameron McCormick and the legendary golf coach David Ledbetter, who is pretty much the benchmark for golf coaches as far as what you would hope to accomplish over a career. He's been a pioneer, and if, like myself, you make a living coaching golf, then you owe a massive debt of gratitude to Ledbetter as he very much paved the way for us. And if you're an athlete, please enjoy this opportunity to hear two coaches that have coached multiple number one players in the world and major winners dig deep into all things high performance as there's plenty to learn from between the collected wisdom shared in this conversation. They cover a lot of topics over a very in-depth chat. So I'll let you jump right in. Please enjoy episode 47 of the Earn Your Edge podcast with David Ledbetter and Cameron McCormick. We could likely sit and discuss the Aussie victory in the Ashes series, and we're talking cricket for those unfamiliar with what it is that we're talking about, but I'm sure the conversation would pretty soon, you'd re-raise me to the English victory in the one-day international series, the Cricket World Cup in the summer of this year. So I'll offer up a general truce on cricket rivalry and conversation and move into the meat of, meat of the conversation, if that's okay. All right. Well, we're one all in that department. There you go, mate. Your life in golf and the lessons from high performance is really what I'm here and want to discuss, both in developing the best athletes in the world and the, the largest portfolio of golf business endeavors. Uh, so the first question possibly is jumping off point. In a career where you've achieved so much, but still with time on your side, are there one or two things you'd still like to accomplish? So in a nutshell, trying to say you're not that old. But, uh... <laughs> I'm not far behind you. No. You, you know, obviously, I've had a, an unbelievable career. I mean, I, people say, would you change it? And I say, no, not at all. I mean, look, I'm a failed tour player. I, I wanted to play the tour in my early years, and I realized that I had talents in other areas, and uh, I'm, I'm really glad I did. And so, I mean, it, it's one of those things. I mean, I suppose it's, it's a little bit the American approach as far as, okay, what are your goals? Did you have goals to be a great teacher? And I really didn't. It was just something I really enjoyed. I enjoyed helping people. I had a passion for helping people. I got associated with the with the right people at the right time, and maybe with a little talent, little knowledge, little luck. And you know, it, it turned out great. So, and I've sort of delved into a lot of different areas in the golf business, from obviously instruction and schools and academies and teaching aids and books and videos and TV magazines, you name it. And so it's it's been a it, it, I think I've, I've just uh, just been teaching uh, 12 hours a day uh, over the last 50 years. I might have probably either burnt out or would have found it boring. And I say not to disparage any of the professionals that do that because there's a lot of great teachers around the world that sort of spend their lives sort of just working day in, day out. But the great thing that I've, I've had the variation, shall we say, in all these different areas and when, as you say, you know, what have I got? What do I still want to do? I mean, I, I still love teaching and coaching. I mean, I've changed my life a little bit. I'm not doing quite as much as I used to. We've uh, we've actually associated ourselves with a, a company out of Korea called Golf Zone. So they've actually pretty much purchased my golf academy, of which we have 40 around the world. So I'm sort of a consultant to them now and uh, developing new academies and, and coaches. And uh, We've actually just started, which I'm really excited about. Uh, we opened it last week. It, it's an online uh, uh, deal, uh, the, the Ledbetter Golf University, which, uh, as I say, you know, uh, seeing I didn't go to university, I had to sort of form my own one. Mm -hmm. So, uh, uh, but, but it, it's, it, essentially, it's really uh, to 
to help instructors and coaches worldwide, not just our coaches, of which we have over 100 associated with us, but just to help improve the standard and quality of coaching. I mean, look, there's a lot of great individual teachers around, but I still think the quality of teaching and coaching needs to be improved because in the end, if we're going to grow the game, as you know, the old adage says, uh, we, we've got to keep people interested and we've got to get people playing better, quicker. And so I think if we can get young, enthusiastic, potential teachers and coaches in the game and give them a background, I mean, I'm not saying the PJ doesn't do a good job in many areas, but let's face it, I mean, I think a lot of golf professionals, especially young ones, assistants at Term Pro, they're pretty much a jack of all trades, trying to do a little bit of this, a little bit of that, where coaching and teaching, as you well know, and uh, which you've been very successful doing. I mean, it's a full-time job. I mean, you don't have time to run tournaments and to merchandise and all the other things. So I'm excited about this because, say, we've got all sorts of uh, different components, different modules to the course from biomechanics. Uh, my good friend, J.J. Reve, who I know you're acquainted with. We've got fitness levels. We've got the instruction side of things. We've got nutrition. We've got... So it, it, it dabbles in a lot of different areas which people want to get involved with uh, because I always feel that, you know, as a coach and a teacher, you need to have a, a wide-ranging knowledge of different areas in order to sort of, you know, assist the people you're trying to trying to help, no matter what level of player they are. And, yes, we have access to different people and resources to different people. But on the other hand, I think as a coach and a teacher, if you can have this access to a lot of different information that just helps to broaden the scope and broaden your ability to get the message across. Yeah, beautiful there. A couple of threads that I want to pull on and I hope to explore much depth to many of the elements that you just described. But the first point that you made is the overarching mission of what we do as instructors and coaches could be defined in two words, better, faster. And you just mentioned that. And undoubtedly, it's beyond a full-time job. In, in my opinion, I wish there were two more days, another 48 hours in the week to continue to run down the rabbit holes that would or are influences of performance. It's not a straight line in just understanding swing methodology and biomechanics. It's multifactorial as we try and stand in front of someone, whether that's world-class or recreational player, and, and improve their performance. But the thread I'd like to pull on first is the early arc. And maybe this is just scratching my own itch. You were born in England, moved to Southern Africa when you were seven. I'm super intrigued about your childhood growing up in Rhodesia. And I'll take a stab and guess that less than 1% of our audience, or what, probably more so less than 1% of the general population knows where Rhodesia is or what it became. So can you give me and give the viewers, sorry, the listeners a understanding of why did your parents move to Rhodesia when you were seven and, and how that changed your maybe upbringing and your involvement in golf? Yeah, well, yeah, back in the early 60s, uh, people in Britain were, you know, the economy wasn't good. So people were uh, immigrating, they're going to all parts of the world. You know, some people ended up in Australia and New Zealand and Canada and South Africa and and Rhodesia, which was a it now called Zimbabwe, was a country just just north of South Africa in Southern Africa. And it just so happened my my father's sister had gone out there and her husband had been on some contract and said, "Boy, this is really an amazing place." So. And it, it really was. It was a, an amazing place to grow up in. I mean, we, we moved out there. The weather was unbelievable. It was like San Diego on steroids. And mm -hmm. It was a very, very sporty country, a very sporty country. And we played all sorts of sports growing up. I mean, you know, I played cricket, a lot of cricket, field hockey, athletics, soccer, 
and golf was a sort of sport we did in the holidays. And, and it was for a, a very small community. We actually had a lot of good players. I mean, because, I mean, you know, childhood friends of mine were people like Nick Price and Dennis Watson and Mark Nalty. And, and these, these guys became, you know, obviously Nick became you know, number one in the world. And for a very small country, it really developed some really, really good players. So golf was one of those sports. It was easy access, which is one of the things that, you know, I'm, I have got a big focus on now trying to help the junior golf in the U.S. because, I mean, we need easy access. And we had easy access. I'm sure you did in growing up in Australia. I yeah, mean, doubt. Junior memberships were $50 a year, and you could play whenever, and they had junior tournaments all over the place. So it was really easy to get out and play, and the, the climate was good, and uh, it, was, uh, it, it really was a, a, a great place to grow up in. Obviously, you know, politics, et cetera, et cetera, things changed. But, I mean, for my – I mean, I – pretty much spent my formative years there and, and st- stayed there until I was in my early 20s. So, And from there, I actually ventured down to South Africa and played on the South African tour and so on, which the South African tour is a sort of a, you know, they call it a sunshine tour, but it, it, uh, it's sort of a tour where a lot of players these days, it's a formative tour where players go out and play before they venture out maybe to Europe or the US. But it's a, you know, it was, it was a great grounding for me. And so, I actually, I mean, I just loved the game so much, even though, I mean, I, I started, I think, when I was 11, I think. Yeah, 11, mm-hmm. 11 or 12. And so, and uh, I, I got very friendly with the, the club professional at the club I was a junior member at. And he used to, hey, I used to go on weekends and sort of help out in the pro shop and he give me balls and lessons and so on. So it was, uh, it, it was just a, a sport I fell in love with. And I thought, well, hey, you know, I'm going to see how good I can get at it. And if I, if I don't, get good enough to be a player, then, hey, I'd, I'd still love to be in the business. So, uh, you know, I always, I always say, Cameron, I, I have never really worked a day in my life because every, every day is like, you know, it's like, hey, you're doing something you love. I mean, how many people actually do a job which is their love, their hobby, their passion? Uh, I mean, it's very, very few. We're, we're so lucky. And then the becoming of a coach, I read somewhere, correct me, fact check us for the benefit of accuracy here, turn pro 17, 18 years old, and then two or three years in, you decided that coaching was the direction you wanted to go. Now, clearly, I followed that same pathway by virtue of lack of success. I was self-funded when I turned pro, and unless you're finishing first, second, or third, when you're a developmental pro traveling the world, you're gonna run out of money really fast, and that's what I did, and I turned to coaching because it was something that brought joy, as you spoke to just before, in each and every opportunity that you could um, demonstrate the skills to coach, to instruct. So uh, when did coaching come along, and who were, what were those early experiences like? Well, you know, I always, uh, I always tell this little story. It's, it's funny in many respects, but it's pretty true. I mean, in the early days, I mean, I did. I turned professional when I was 17, I mean, which is very, very young. But, I mean, that was sort of the, the British system, if you will. You became an assistant at a club, and then you worked your way up. And if you didn't go to college or university, and if you wanted to get in the golf industry, then that's what you did. You turned professional, and you learned under, under a qualified professional, and they taught you the ropes, so to speak. So... So what I, the professional club I was at, was Kevin Quinn. He said, hey, listen, if you want to go out and give a few lessons, I had no idea what I was doing. I mean, <laughs> I read books and magazines. I mean, from when I started, I mean, I really loved, I mean, Hogan, Ben Hogan, Modern Fundamentals was my Bible, as it was Nick Price's as well. Nick, In fact, Nick Price still has his Ben Hogan book, which is highlighted. And this was 
I think when he so this was probably forty years ago that he he did that to his book. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, so so I went out there, you know, I was teaching, you know, Mrs. Johnson how to supinate and what have you, and sort of we, you know, and probably I mean, if, if the truth be known, is whatever I was trying on my with my own swing, uh, I was probably trying to work it with somebody else. I've read something in a magazine. I thought, hey, that sounds pretty good. Right. So let me try this. And so I mean, I used to hustle for lessons, and uh, I, I I literally. I say I tell this story because it's quite funny. I mean, I used to sort of look along the range and see somebody up, you know, some some uh, um, some duffer up the end there, sort of hacking away. I'd go down and introduce myself if I didn't already know him, and say, "Hey, listen, you know, I, I see you're struggling with your game. In fact, you know, to be quite honest, your swing really sucks." And uh, <laughs> yeah, for, for, you know, this is what I charged for six lessons, whatever it was, you know, ten dollars a lesson or whatever the case was. You know, it was, I mean pounds back in those days but anyway uh and uh say so you know I'll, I'll just ch- you pay pay up front and uh you know i'll just charge you for five you know that way i've got a little bit of money for tournament entries and so on and so forth so I thought, oh, it's pretty good so anyway so you know so back then you know because people ask me so how has how has instruction changed how's your instruction changed over the years i said well you know back then i'd sort of look at somebody and said which is my opinion people swing stuff because you remember we didn't have video i mean we we might have had an old eight millimeter camera occasionally we'd look at, and you know, it was grainy. You couldn't couldn't see what the heck was going on anyway. So it was all sort of you know getting a mirror or watch watch certain players. I mean, we had a couple of unbelievable players back then. A player like a, a Simon Hobday who passed away a few years ago, who was an amazing ball striker. I mean, very simple swing. In fact, a lot of my early philosophy came just watching him hit balls. It was amazing. And uh, but anyway, so. People say, well, what's the difference today, you know, between back then? I said, well, you know, back then, um, you know, obviously we didn't have it. It was just my eyes, my instincts and intuition and so on and so forth. And where today I said, look, we've got all the technology. You know, we've got we've got track man, we've got force plates, we've got tables, we've got brain mapping, we've got high-speed video cameras. You know, we can analyze it to the nth degree. So I said, back then it was just my opinion, this person's swing sucked. Today we can actually prove it. You know? so, <laughs> In essence, I mean, in many respects, you think about it, you know, equipment's changed, athletes have changed at the highest level, but it's still, you know, it's still to some extent a mystery in how you get inside somebody's brain and how you get the message across, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, so a a lot of my sort of uh, laboratory work back in the early days, you know, was with people who, you know, I probably should try to find them and give them their money back because, but I mean, that's how we learn, isn't it? I mean, through trial and error and uh, experimentation and way, you know, I, you know, just sort of being somewhat decent player, I was sort of being able to try things myself. And I remember, you know, I remember working on, for instance, Ben Hogan's grip back, back in the day. And I mean, you know, I, 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 I was bound to determine to get it. I spent about, I remember three or four months doing it. And then I just gave up. I just could not do it. And so, and realizing now, you know, all, not now, but a few years ago, that really, you know, Ben Hogan's grip was for Ben Hogan, and it was, uh, you know, it was for a guy who sort of was a snap hooker in his early career, and you know, he designed, he got that grip right up in the palm, a pretty weak left hand, and it's like, geez, and you know, it was like, but you try it and you experiment, and so I think, I mean, as teachers and coaches, and I always say, look, I mean, you know, one of the adages we use throughout our academy is, is that, hey, we who dare to teach must never cease to learn. One of the more common questions that we get from Altus clients and listeners is how do I spin it like a tour player? 
Well, the first step is to treat your equipment like a tour player, and that means that you've got the right golf ball and you've got fresh grooves. Visit Vokey.com to see the spin research that Bob Vokey and his team have conducted to better understand how grooves wear over time. After 75 to 100 rounds of golf, you owe it to yourself to test your grooves to make sure that they're still getting maximum spin from your wedges. Find a fitter at Vokey.com for a spin test soon. When I came over to the States the first time, Gary Wyron, who was in charge of the education the PGA at the time many years ago, and I came over and uh, he, he and a couple of other people like Jim Flick, you know, obviously a very you know, great teacher in his own right, uh, Paul Berthley, so people of that, uh, that vintage who, you know, really opened my eyes as far as, wow, this is, uh, this is pretty cool. And, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, when I, I really was down at the term at some stage to come over to the States because uh, my first week I went, I went to a seminar in Louisville, Kentucky in the winter, which I thought, well, I don't think much of this place, you know, coming out of Africa where, you know, lows were 70 degrees and the highs were 85. I thought, whoa, you know, so, it, but anyway, the next week was Piners. I thought, well, this is more like it. Now, this is, if this is, you know, if this is what the States is like, this is what golf's like, this is where I want to be. So I was sort of had a goal at the back of my mind at some stage, I wanted to come over to the U S and, uh, you know, I, I, find, I finally got here after spending, I went to, well, I went to tour school in Europe. I, I missed my card by a shot, which was probably the best thing that ever happened. And I, I spent a couple of years at a, at a club uh, uh, north of London uh, teaching. I had my own academy, so to speak. And then I came over and I actually hooked up with a sort of a mentor of mine whose name was Phil Ritson, a very, very well-known coach, who was actually the golf director at Disney World. And uh, he organized for me to get a job uh, in Chicago. So I got a teaching job up in Chicago. I was going to get married, and I, I sort of uh, put that on hold, which I, uh, which I never ended up marrying the girl, unfortunately. But um, we're happily married now to my wife, Kelly, who played on the LPGA Tour for many years. But having said that, I say it was sort of my goal to get over here. Uh, it was funny stories in the early years living in a little – I uh, lived at the club and lived in this little, you know, I was, I mean, I had a pretty nice lifestyle in England and, uh, but then I came over and I was sort of uh, living in a, uh, I had all the help, all the help from the, the green staff that had this little building and they said, Hey, we've got a, we got a room for you here. And so that, that was, it was interesting. And uh, so you, I sort of learned about American life and country club life, which I could have written a movie about. But <laughs> uh, so, you know, a lot of, a lot of fun in the early years. And I think when you, when you're young and sick, Young and single, you put up with a lot of stuff, but it was my goal to sort of learn as much as I can. And um, that was an interesting time because actually that's where I actually met Hank Haney in the early years because the whole of the whole of Chicago, where I actually ended up at a club called Oak Park, was a, a John Jacobs area. John Jacobs being obviously the great British coach who unfortunately passed away last year. But, you know, he was a, a magnificent teacher, good player in his own right captain of the PGA and he was the Ryder Cup captain and so on and really, really great coach. And anyway, they, they love, they love the John Jacobs philosophy. They said, can you teach a John Jacobs philosophy? I said, yeah, I can do that. Cause I actually had taken a lesson from him over in, in Europe. Uh, one of the things I like to do, I used to get different teachers and take lessons and just, just to see how things worked and uh, what their ideas were. And um, so I, uh, I started, I started teaching in Chicago and uh, needless to say, you know, it's interesting. You can only instincts and things stick with you. And I, I even though uh, say I, I liked a lot of what John Jacobs had to say, I couldn't teach like John Jacobs. And so 
I think we all have to find our own style and philosophy and uh, the way we communicate is very different. So uh, it sort of upset a few people at the club because I sort of ventured out on my own, shall, shall we say, and you know, the head pro wasn't exactly enamored with me because I was doing something different to what he was doing. And the problem was a lot of his students would come and see me. So it was like, so we had, had a bit of a battle in the early years. But, uh, you know, then I ventured down to Florida, opened my own academy, and initially we called it the Andy Bean Golf Studio, which was a, a resort called Greenleaf in Central Florida. And that's really where my career started and all the you know, my, my peers, people like Nick Price and Dennis Watson came over and slept in my condo on the practice tee and we sort of had at it. And and then uh, Nick Faldo came along and that sort of changed, pretty much changed everything for me. And so uh, after a couple of years, that was not in the early stages, but after a couple of years, after he started having some success, my career really blossomed. So I, I was very fortunate. I met, as I say, and it was, it was just a lot of fun. You know, in the early years and, um, you know, you sort of look back at those times and say, hey, well, that was a great grounding for, for what I've done uh, since. Yeah, it's still fun, mate. I see you at all the major championships and you've always got a smile on your face. And I, I see you at uh, education seminars, too. And you're always telling jokes and smiling. And uh, we um, hang with bated breath on the stories that you tell. I want to go back just a little bit on the process of becoming. You'd mentioned professional development that there were not the available streams of information for you to develop your skills that exist today. Uh, by example, your Lebanon University, a professional development initiative that offers back the lessons that you've learned over the extensive career that you have to those that are wanting to move in that direction and chart or a career arc that hopefully touches the heavens of golf instruction as you have. So the question really that I'm getting to is a superpower question. When you were becoming a superhero coach, you mentioned that you had to develop your own identity. You couldn't be John Jacobs. You had to be David Ledbetter. What do you feel like are the skills that differentiate you over and above the tier of coach that you would consider maybe is still in need of development? They're not a rookie level coach, but they're not quite of um, the level to be able to uh, get results fast and get results for the best in the world? Well, I, I think you know, growing up, I mean, in, in, in the profession, I think probably the fact that I didn't have access to all the technology that we have today, uh, I, it, it got you thinking more. And it, it I mean, you know, my, my grandfather actually was one of lead, Britain's leading osteopaths and he was blind. He, he was shot in the war and he was blind. And so he had an unbelievable feel and touch and instinct. And you know, my mother always said, well, you, you've got some of what you've got from him, which maybe, maybe I did, maybe I didn't. But I've always felt that, you know, instinct plays a huge role in what you, in what we do. I mean, look, as a player, I mean, you do things. I mean, I always use the, uh, the example of a lot of times you'll ask, a, you'll ask a tour player, okay, hit this bunker shot for me and tell, tell me what do you have to do to hit a good bunker shot? Well, they're probably in reality, couldn't tell you until after they hit it because they have no idea. It's, it's an instinctive thing. They've done it for so long. Uh, you know, with a, hey, I want to hit a fade. I want to hit a draw. It's almost like they almost have to think about it. And I think the same thing with teaching. It's almost as if I do things. I mean, I have, I, I think, uh, I mean, a lot of what I try to do with a lot of my coaches is get them to watch me teach. And then they'll sort of, I say, hey, don't, don't question until after I finish. Because a lot of things I do are very instinctive, and you sort of go in a different, you go in a direction because you think, okay, this is the way I picture, the way I sort of try to 
the way I try to sort of look at things is that I, I have an image in my mind of how a player should should swing. I looked at obviously, I look at the ball flight, I look at the the contact, I look at the overall shape of the swing, and then I sort of have an image in my mind of how I think this player should swing in order to hit the shot that I feel they could hit. And so it, it's uh, it's interesting. I mean, I, I've always, I mean, I'm, I'm a fairly visual person, so I've always been able to do this. And so I think it's important, I mean, for a lot of our young coaches and teachers, I say, listen, one of the things we mandate is that they don't teach with technology. They try to teach, I mean, because as they're getting back to John Jacobs, he, 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 could quit, he could fix anybody quicker than I've ever, ever seen in my life. I mean, it was amazing. I mean, he could actually turn his back and hear where the ball was struck on the face. He could, uh, he, he, he would do things which were absolutely incredible. And so having that instinct to be able to sort of do that and back it up by science now, which we do, which we, we can do, I think is, is tremendous. So I think, I think I see a lot of young teachers out there who maybe they rely maybe purely on track man, for instance, which I think is, I mean, it's, it's, listen, what, what a wonderful tool it is, but I think it, it, it's, it is a tool, and uh, whether it be video, whether it be KVEST, I mean, we have, you know, JJ says you're very lucky there because you've got biomechanical eyes, whatever that means, but it means it's like you can see certain things, you can sense certain things, you, you're aware that a person has limitations or restrictions in the way that they can actually move, and maybe you work around that, especially with players that don't have a lot of time to play and practice, you know, your recreational player. So it's, uh, you know, it, it really, to me, I mean, I, I, I'm not... Listen, I, I, I think the quality of teaching and coaching is, is improving tremendously. There's a lot of information out there. And I think part, maybe one of the issues is that a lot of the information, if you go on YouTube, is probably geared more towards better players. And I think the average golfer, when you think about it, in reality, they have less time to play and practice than they ever have in the past. We always used to think in terms of, well, we've got to get, get away from the quick fix teaching. Well, the problem is we've got to almost get, got to get back to that because people just don't have the time to spend going out and hitting balls and playing and practicing and et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, you give people a couple of drills to do, and you know, full well, you know, if they do it a couple of times, I mean, that's a lot. They're not going to spend, I mean, you get a few people that will be focused on doing it, but a lot of people, they're not going to spend their 10 minutes, you know, four or five times a week doing these little exercises and drills to get better. So we, you know, I, I think, I think instinct plays a big role to answer your question there, Cameron, to be able to, uh, can I interject real quick? You may in, indeed have a secondary or even a third point to make on that superpower, but it's fascinating you brought that up. And there's, it doesn't just exist in golf, it exists in all, uh, let's say, professional domains for which an increase in tech in terms of aiding and decision-making has been uh, emerging or in fact may even be to this day pervasive. And in the medical community, Corey, my um, business partner here at Altus and also joins on the podcast, found some research that they've coined this term in the medical community called hyposkilia, which in a sense means that the over-application uh, over of technology numbs the senses and uh, situates our problem solving into a very narrow range of, let's say, options versus, as you described, if relying on intuition and instinct, you have a multitude of solutions to a given problem, similar to the football coach that's sitting on the sideline with the laminated sheet for let's say offense or defense with a multitude of plays to either prevent a touchdown or score a touchdown. And also, as uh, you correctly stated, using the tech as a secondary resource to either confirm what it is you're seeing or as differential opinion. So they're facing the same thing, no matter the professional domain. Really, really insightful. 
Yeah, that, that is insightful because, uh, as I say, I do think, you know, we're living obviously in a technology age. And I think at times, I mean, you see a lot of young players, they're over, I think they're overcoached. I mean, I mean, there's still, there's still, I think, credence in the old saying, you know, the, the kiss theory, keep it simple, stupid, you know, because, I mean, you look at uh, a lot of players now. I mean, look, not everybody can be a Bryson DeChambeau. I mean, I mean, there's, there's still the, the artist out there, the Bubba Watson type. Mm-hmm. But I even put, you know, Dustin Johnson in the artist type. And, you know, probably Jordan is somewhere in between, between the artist and the mechanic. And I think that's probably, that's the area that you have to work on or work in, in my opinion. You know, some players may be a little more artistic. Some players may be a little bit more mechanical. But there has to be a blend of the two, I think, in order to achieve uh, for a player to really reach their potential. Yeah, and with that objective being better, faster, you alluded to, we need to get back to results now. And I think that it comes with a connotation of negativity when you describe it as, or for players, when you describe it as this is a Band-Aid. No, this is the way you get better, faster. Literally, with recreational players, I speak of a 20-minute runway. Unless you help them see change and see improvement in that short a period of time, then invariably they're going to leave that coaching session, that instruction session with something other than an opinion of effectiveness, something other than an excitement that turns into motivation to go out and practice. And with elite level players, your runway is maybe two or three swings. So it might span three minutes before it better bear fruit. Otherwise, it's spit the bit and go in a different direction. Yeah, 100%. I agree 100%. And and I think it's also, you know, it really, I think it, a coach and a teacher, I mean, we, we think about it really. I mean, there is a difference, okay? I mean, look, probably in the early stages when you're working with a player, there's a lot more teaching involved. I mean, subsequent to that, it's coaching. I mean, in reality, why would you keep changing things? I mean, if you keep changing things as the years go on, I mean, you might change terminology, but if you te- keep changing things, does that not really, if you think about it, maybe the first time around, we didn't know what the hell we were talking about. <laughs> it's like this. <laughs> So in reality, I mean, look, at, I mean, I know everything's an evolution and we, we, we add a little, little here, a little there. But, you know, I mean, I've, I've seen, honestly, coaches almost go at a, you know, change, you know, go to tangent compared to what they're working on. And it's like, well, if that's the case, man, they obviously didn't understand what they're doing the first time out. So instinct does play an awful role, awfully big role, because as we know, look, we're not we're not teaching robots here. We're teaching individuals who have a very different not only uh, not only different physical skill levels, but mental skill levels. And the way that uh, we go about getting that message across, it's, it's really, really vital. And I, I think we really have to look at it. I mean, that's why we keep learning. We, hey, we find better ways of getting our information across. We know what we're trying to do, but how do we get that information to that person? The information may be perfect, but the way we're communicating it may be completely wrong. Indeed, couldn't agree more. Can I go to a a more business-related question? You know, 83, I think it was, and again, fact check, uh, the very first Ledbetter Golf Academy at Greenleaf in Central Florida, and then now with 40 around, or 40 plus around the world. Uh, What have you learned, and this is a very broad, umbrella-based question, but the, the top two or three things maybe, or if it's just one that's allowed you as an instructor, that's beyond the reputation of the instructor that grows as your clients have success on a world level, which I hope to 
to get to understand and speak about. But what have you learned from the business side that are most the most important business lessons that have helped develop the portfolio of academies that you've developed? Well, I, I think the thing is, um, look, I mean, not that I've gone out to necessarily blow my own horn, blow my own horn, but fortunately, I guess from a business perspective, other people have, and whether it be your students, your clients. And, you know, writing books, doing articles, being on TV, doing stuff of that nature. I mean, you, you become associated with, with instruction. And, you know, we've uh, been very fortunate, obviously. Look, I've had, I've had some failures, as we all have. I mean, not, not everything's honky-dory, as we know. But, I mean, as a, as generally, though, we've had a lot of success in a lot of different areas. And I think the, the thing is I've always tried to part into our instructors and coaches. First of all, look. Yes, it's a way of making a living, but more than anything else, I want passionate people working for me, with me, because in the end, that, that, that space, spending that extra 10, 15 minutes at the end of the day with somebody, with a kid, with, it, it shows an awful lot. And so I, I think, you know, I think what I've learned really is that, you know, especially with the, from having this number of academies, you're only as good as the people you have around you. And mm-hmm. I think it's really important that, you know, you have a good team of people, people who have the same mindset as I have done over the years. And because I say, I, you know, I can honestly put my hand on my heart and say, look, I, I look, I've been fairly successful what I've done. I've had, you know, I've had a good life and we live well. But I mean, you know what? That's never been the goal. For me, the goal has always been, hey, I want to help somebody. And if, to me, that's number one. You've got to have that passion to want to help somebody to help get better. It's not just the accolades you get. I mean, the accolades you get are because because of what you do. It's, it's sort of, you know, it's working at Bass Ackwood, as we say. It's not like, okay, I'm going to go out and get my name out there. I'm going to find some kid I'm going to work with. I mean, you know, look, I have such a great relationship with, uh, with Jordan, Jordan Spieth. And, I mean, look, he's, I mean, you're like a father figure, a mentor to him. And so it's, I mean, it, it's, as we know, in coaching, there's a lot more to it than just sort of a, for the most part, with a lot of the players that we work with, it's a lot more than just a player-coach relationship. I mean, you sort of get into it for, you know, you're sort of a part-time psychologist, cheerleader, mentor, father figure, you name it. And so, and uh, you know, it's. I mean, it it, it hurts sometimes. I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm be quite frank. I mean, all the work we do with Lydia Co. I mean, I'm, maybe we'll get to, maybe we won't. But I mean, the fact is, it it hurts more probably mentally than anything else because of the time and the effort that we put into her and the fact that, you know, we, she was like a daughter to me and we did so many, I mean, so many great things together. I mean, she was the star and uh, I was the, sort of the guide. And so, you know, it, it hurts when you, at the, it's like, hey, well, listen, I want to make a change. And so, you know, it's like, well, okay, that's fine. I mean, you, you have every right to do so, but, you know, we, you really do, you know, I mean, you put your heart and soul into it because you really want to see this person get better and you like the person and you, it's, it's, uh, it's you know, coaching, it, it, being a coach, uh, which is say just more than a teacher is, uh, there's a lot of responsibility that comes with it. And I think, uh, to me, it's like, I, I think it's all about the passion that, uh, the teacher that I have that work with me uh, display, because if they have that passion and they have that thirst for knowledge they're going to get better and then, you know, they're, they're going to get rewarded in so many different ways. And to me, the, you know, the rewards are far greater than just 
what you earn. Sure. Unde- undoubtedly. And I hope to, again, go down that rabbit hole of player relationship uh, from player-centered questions here in just a little bit. But staying on the business front and disclose as much or as little you can opt out of this question, as I mentioned on the front end. What was the deal structure like when you first inked your academy? And how is that your business acumen relative to um, inking those deal structures changed over the, the, the 30 years? Well, initially, you know, I was involved with uh, the management company IMG when Mark McCormack uh, was around mm-hmm. and uh, I knew Mark very well. And he said, hey, David, you know, we've got this great tennis uh, academy, the Nick Politeri Tennis Academy, and we'd like to, we'd like for you to do the same thing in golf. We feel that, uh, you know, the time is right. This is when, you know, Nick Fowler started to play well and, you know, winning tournaments and so on. And my, my name was up there and he said, hey, let's get these let's get these academies. So I said, okay. And I, I didn't know much about it. I had no, no idea. And un, uh, unfortunately I signed a pretty bad agreement with them. <laughs> <laughs> Details. <laughs> Golf pro, you know, it was like, oh, this sounds great. Okay. And so, um, so in the early stages, it was really good. Uh, and we, st- we had a big junior academy down here in the sort of Sarasota area where I live now. And uh, that, that we started off with six kids. And I mean, when I left them, oh, only maybe three years ago to start our own venture in the junior academy area, we had, I think, 170 kids, you know. So, I mean, it really, really grew. And, but it, it was a very interesting experience. But the problem was I didn't have any control over these academies, uh, uh, maybe the training to a certain extent, but how they were run. I mean, you know, these places were open willy-nilly in places which I didn't think were really that great but you know it was the licensing fee involved and it was like you know i mean management groups are out there to make money and you know i things got carried away so fortunately i was over a period of time i was able slowly but surely to sort of get my my rights and my name back and to a point where i got them back worldwide initially i got them back just in the u.s and i got all the foreign uh, academies back as well so we sort of went about it very differently and uh uh, and so, um, you know, it, all, all these, all these academies, apart from our main one, which is really what we own at, at Champions Gate in, in Orlando, but the other ones are all sort of, they're licensed. And so we, we essentially provide a service to the, uh, academies, uh, to the golf courses or facilities, resorts, whatever they may be. We, we train the instructors, we train the coaches, we, a lot of times we'll t- train the existing coaches, so there's a philosophy that they can follow. And uh, and I go to periodically. I go to. I don't go to them all because there's way too many of them. Mm-hmm. But I go to different ones around the world. You know, for instance, I'm going to be one next week at Stoke Park, which is just outside of London, which we opened a new one uh, this past year, famous for the uh, filming of uh, Goldfinger. <laughs> so that's where the movie, you know, James Bond movie was shot. But uh, anyway, uh, so. You know, it, it, uh, th- these academies really, they're, um, they, they actually help to expand the name. They help to, uh, um, I, I suppose it's all part of the growth factor, really. And so we're, we're sort of, we have a lot of influence in many countries around the world. And uh, we do a lot of things with federations and so on. And, and, you know, the interesting thing, too, Cameron, is that, you know, from a business perspective, we, <laughs> look, I've, I've, I've trained a lot of my competition now. A lot, a lot of the instructors that I've sort of uh, had with me or worked with me over the years have sort of gone out there and done very, very well. So we, we've actually, we've, we've come to a decision. We're only 
hiring people now with terminal illnesses. So after a couple of years, that's it, you know. So, uh, so, so we, uh, no, but in all seriousness, though, I mean, it, it's nice to be able to help people and help them to help instructors and coaches to sort of fulfill their dreams. So we've had a lot of great teachers and coaches who've come through our system. Brilliant, brilliant. Wanted to move on to maybe a, a question that I'll define or title as clearing misconceptions. And the, I guess the root of this question comes back to maybe a curiosity. And that is, do you think that putting a swing philosophy out there as you've done on uh, many occasions over the decades gives um, ammunition to the haters, whether those haters be broadcasting through the press on TV or magazines or just the individual recreational player who can't identify with swing methodology. I guess contrasted against any other instructor and the most prominent that comes to mind, which would be uh, Butch, who when asked about methodology says, my method is I tell you what to do, you get better and you pay me. Yes, he's written books. Yes, he's made DVDs, but never, uh, let's say, came come out with a step-by-step, uh, systematic, codified approach to developing a particular swing style. Right. Well, as we know, it, it's it's dangerous because that you you are you do tend to get labelled, and mm. so it, it was always that that was always a a challenge for me because I don't consider myself a method uh, a method teacher. I consider myself more more of a we we call what we have a philosophy rather than a than a method because it's very. It's very wide-ranging. There's a lot of flexibility within it. But, you know, you have to put something down. If you're going to write a book or if you're going to do a video, you, you've got to put something down. You can't be so airy-fairy. Well, you could do this or you could do that. You could do this. You could, you've got to have something which is a little bit more defined. And so when I wrote The Golf Swing back in 1989, I think, and we used David Frost as the model, you know, it, it, it sort of did define me to some extent. But, you know, the thing is I – I always say I use that as a basis. It's not sort of, a, you know, it's not gospel. I mean, it can vary. I mean, and you know, listen, you people, they're going to they're gonna like you or they're going to dislike you. You can't be all things to all people. And that's just the way it is, especially in today's age, you know, with social media. I mean, goodness, they're going to jump all over you. And it's like, you know, I've always had lots of, lots of things from, you know, from lead poisoning to you name it, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, it's got to be a little bit like, water off a duck's back because they say you're not going to be all things to all people and all all that counts is that you feel that you're doing your best and you you know sometimes maybe you know i think we're all human we all sort of question ourselves or maybe maybe they're right and then you think no you know what i've had a lot of success i think i don't think they are right i mean they can have their opinions and everybody has opinions they're free to think the way they want to think but uh, as i say it is it is always tricky when you put something down in black and white and say hey this is this is what I believe. But I mean, as we know, look, I mean, you uh, look, I mean, I look at things. I mean, you go back in the day there, Cameron, you, you've got a coach like a Jimmy Ballard, right, who wanted you to move sort of three or four inches off the ball going back and three or four inches you know, going forward. I mean, there's a lot of head movement and so on. I mean, I'll be first to say, listen, there were a couple of people who I actually thought, you know, that philosophy is really good for and I'll use it. It's not like you're sort of so stuck in your ways that I mean, because if you don't look in the bottom, in the final analysis, you're trying to help an individual, no matter what you know what approach you have. And right. So, uh, and that's I think where the instinct comes in a, a lot. So, yeah, I mean, I have my thoughts and uh, my feelings, and I say a lot of my thoughts are still based very much on that book in 1989. I mean, I've I've certainly evolved from there, and I've got some you know, especially understanding a little bit more about biomechanics, talking a little bit how we use ground forces, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, to help us to 
develop energy and to uh, apply energy to the ball. But uh, I still, uh, I still you go back to that book. It's still the basis, really, of our of the lead better philosophy, shall we say? And it's uh, you know, it was a great book. I mean, it sold I don't know how many you know, half a million copies in a lot of different languages. So you know, it was really. It was because uh, I, I started on the Ben Hogan book, actually. I mean, it's just the way that his book was laid out, Five Fundamentals. So I started on that where it was a sort of a, hey, it was a sort of a, you know, you could learn from it. I mean, even even all the links that we put in, the 11 links, it's like, hey, you get a mirror, you could check certain things. So people actually had the ability, you know, this was obviously before, you know, video and et cetera, et cetera. I mean, there were, you know, people could actually get in the mirror and check certain things and sort of create, okay, that, that makes sense. That makes sense. Okay, this is where you want to be. So, you know, it is an interesting, it's an interesting uh, thought that you brought up there. And uh, as I say, you know, I mean, look, I, I think in some respects in the early years, I was labeled as way too mechanical. And probably in this day and age with all the, with all the technology out there, I'm, I'm actually sort of labeled as not being scientific enough. So I don't know. It's, 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 it's fickle, isn't it? It's, it's very fickle. But you, you've done a great job of answering that clearing misconceptions uh, curiosity that I have. And I think the curiosity for listeners out there when they look at the, let's say, menu of coaches, instructors, maybe at their own club or in their city, whatever city they live in, that a base philosophy is a roadmap. And to not have a roadmap is to really not know how to get to A to B for said player that you're coaching. Yes, the coach themselves may have the roadmap in their mind, but what you provided and what you've always provided is essentially democratizing development of a golf swing, golf technique, and golf skill by putting this stuff out there and saying, look, here's a way to achieve X, X being a better shot for you. If you want to hit a draw, if you want to hit a fade, if you want to hit it higher, if you want to hit it lower. And in putting that information out there, it's many levels unfortunate that then the person themselves who puts that out there to um, provide value and, and, and gift their knowledge and experience to all of those recreational players or otherwise that need this stuff. Um, it's just many levels wrong to then compartmentalize them, them as uh, technical. And as you clearly mentioned there at the end, the fickle nature is then as time moves forward and more science, more technology and a maybe a more sophisticated level of looking at it because the technology is brought forth, then that same person that was quote unquote labeled now is pinned with the antithetical label to being technical. That's just absurd, isn't it? Right. Uh, you know, that's, if I can interject, I mean, look, when I brought the ACE swing book out, you know, two and a half years ago, I mean, I was, I was criticizing a lot of areas, although, you know, and, and, and many people actually benefit from it because it really was a, sort of a, an extension of my belief, shall we say. It wasn't, ra it wasn't as radical as many people made out to be. I mean, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I mean I've got, we've got Lydia Ko doing a little bit of this A-swing, which all, all it really was was sort of, in essence, was trying to get the backswing a little bit steeper in order to get the downswing a little shallower. Now, if you, you, know, you, you, go, you go out on tour now and you go and check out Matthew Wolf, and oh, here's this new phenom, you know, he's got this interesting swing, and boy, that's a great way for... Uh, you know, for a lot of amateurs to swing where they take it out and get it up and drop it back on the inside. And uh, so it's it's interesting how, you know, time does change things. And so the A-swing to me was just a – it was more of a commercial name than anything else. It was uh, – you know, I always loved, you know, Tiger, you know, was always on – well, I didn't have my A-game today, you know, so we, right. we called A-swing. It was uh, 
you know, I mean, one of my favorite swingers, just to, you know, uh, digress just a second, but one of my favorite swingers of all time was actually Calvin Pete. And so Calvin Pete to me was one of, was, uh, I mean, almost a robot as far as the way he hit the golf ball. I mean, it was amazing what he was able to do. Now we know he had a little deformity in his left arm and he did probably certain things because of that. But the fact, the, the way that he was able to get the club in position coming down was just magnificent. I mean, you know, you, you, it was almost Hogan-esque through impact. And uh, so it was, uh, you know, I sort of, I wouldn't say use him as my model, but I mean, if, if you go back in the day to Nick Price and Nick Faldo, I mean, you, you look at, I've always believed, uh, my belief has always been for the most part, not that I've stuck to it rigidly because I have had players who've swung it more on one plane, if you will, going back, but I've always, I've always believed to some extent of having a slightly steeper backswing to get it shallower coming down because I just think there's more leeway and, for the average golfer who does the exact opposite, I mean, I think it's a godsend to, to actually help him to be able to draw the ball. Would Calvin Pete be described as the best ball striker that you've seen and be around? Or who would, who would that be? I wouldn't say the best ball striker. I would say probably the most consistent ball striker. I mean, you just got to look at his statistics. I mean, the guy, I think he led the driving stats, you know, fairways hit for the first 10 years in a row. So you know, that when the PGA Tour brought out statistics, and I think he led greens in regulation for six of those 10 years. So you'd have to look at it and say, wow, you know, that is uh, that is some record. So, I mean, from a consistency standpoint, look, he wasn't the longest. He wasn't the longest hitter, that's for sure. I mean, he didn't have all the power, but I mean, you know, probably if the guy could have putted anywhere near as well as he struck it, I mean, he probably would have won 25 tournaments, you know. But, I mean, there's been some great ball strikers, though, let's face it, over the years. I mean, look, you can go back to, you know, the Bobby Jones and the, the uh, Hogan's and Sneeds and Byron Nelson's. And then you move up through the, the eras, you know, to obviously the Johnny Millers and um, uh, you know, Jack Nicklaus and et cetera, et cetera. And then, you know, you, you move, you know, you move into sort of the, the consist from a consistency standpoint, you look at a Falda, you look at a, from a pure ball striking, you look at a Nick Price with his irons. I mean, you look at a Greg Norman with the driver. Uh, uh, and so, I mean, everybody has different, I mean, different talent levels, different traits, which sort of signified how, how great a ball striker they were. And, uh, you know, there's probably a lot of great ball strikers, people like a Mac O'Grady, who, you know, who never fulfilled their potential from a standpoint of, you know, achieving victories. Uh, so, I mean, there's been a lot of really great ball strikers. And I think you're getting more and more good ball strikers out there now, nowadays, for sure. And I think this is to do with, Equipment, being able to fit equipment to individuals, the athleticism of players now, uh, the way they work out. Uh, you know, the, obviously that all boils down to the money in the game and what players have to have to do in order to get to the very top. So, you know, it's 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 interesting when you look at you know just ball strikers. I mean, I mean, you can go through the eras, can't you, and say, hey, well, they were a great ball striker, they were great balls, they were great. But if you look at today, I mean. There's very few really poor ball strikers out on tour now. They know the players that slap it around. I mean, you, you just don't get it. I mean, you know, you even even on the even on the LPGA tour now. You know, I've got a young girl from Mexico, Maria Fassi. I mean, she's got 108 miles an hour club head speed with a driver. You know, it's like so things are changing. Athletes are changing. Equipment's changing, and it's just it's progress, really. So let's take a quick break in the action to recognize one of our partners, Under Armour. It's Under Armour's mission to make all athletes better through passion, design, and the relentless pursuit of innovation. And that ethos or mission statement couldn't be more aligned with the Earn Your Edge podcast. We're thankful to be powered by Under Armour. 
Moving specifically to a conversation on players, and I've read that with the 20 plus majors and seven world number ones you, you've coached throughout your career, you're most proud of the work you did with Nick Feldo because it was pioneering. Can you elaborate on your thoughts there? Yeah, well, we know the thing is, I mean, I met Nick Feldo really when he was 18. He was playing, he was playing in uh, South Africa. He, uh, he was actually, I wouldn't say sponsored, but was a, a man who sort of really was, uh, Mr. Golf in South Africa, and then it was George Bloomberg who looked up. I mean, he was great friends with Gary Player, and you know, uh, talk about great ball strikers. Was the you know was the young guy at the time who really never really fulfilled his potential. His name was Bobby Cole, mm-hmm. uh, who teaches I think for Jim McLean now. And uh, I mean, so but essentially, I met Nick Faldo in his early years, and uh, he was his uh, his mentor, his, his minder at the time was the guy who's on the Golf Channel regularly. His name's Warren Humphreys, and they, he used to sort of look after Nick going around playing. And so, you know, I remember seeing this big guy, and uh, he was slim, but he thought, huh. And he was, you know, I think he'd won the, the English Amateur or something, and they, they looked at this guy as sort of, hey, maybe the you know, future potential of, of British golf. And so, you know, I was, you know, being from Britain, I was obviously very interested in sort of followed his career to some extent. And, uh I always remember I was at uh, I was at Sun City, which was the first sort of million dollar tournament which they ran in South Africa, nineteen eighty four, and Nick was playing and Dennis Watson was playing. Dennis invited me over there, and so I, I sort of was chatting with Nick, and uh, he said, "You know," I said, "I, I this was at the time I think when um, Mark O'Meara had already started working with Hank Haney. So yeah, Hank and Mark had formed quite a close relationship, and they, you know, they were, he was seeing the benefits of this work that uh, they were they were doing together. And he said, "You know, I don't like all the stuff that Mark's doing." He said, "But I." And at that time, he was quite friendly with Nick Price, and Nick had been speaking uh, to him uh, and said, "Hey, listen, you should, I've worked with Nick uh, for oh, I don't know, maybe." four or five years prior to that. So, uh, well, four years anyway, 1980, I think we started with Nick. 81, sorry, 81 was when we started. But anyway, they, so they, they got chatting. He said, listen, I, I might like to come and see you. I said, okay, no problem, no problem. So anyway, it was in, in 1985, I uh, was at Muirfield Village, and Nick was playing, and he said, listen, he said, I've made a decision here. It's a big decision for me because uh, I really, and his term was, I want you to throw the book at me. <laughs> Uh, and he said, listen, he said, you know, my goal is to win the Open. He said, I know, because I'd, I'd already, I'd walked with Nick and I discussed with him because they, and he said, you know, I, I really find it difficult to control my ball flight. He said, you know, I hit too many of these spinners. And he said, you know, in the wind, if I want to win an Open, I've got to control my ball flight. Because I remember distinctly, this was in the days that you could actually walk with the players at Augusta, which we can't do now, as you well know. Mm-hmm. And I was walking with him and I mean, he had, he had a number of tee shots that actually sort of, pitched and came backwards and I thought man he's put a lot of spin on it with the driver you know there's was, was no forward roll whatsoever so anyway he said listen I'm going to put myself in your hands he said, I don't care how long it takes I just want to do this and I said okay well it's uh it, so it was it was it was uh, it sort of I didn't take me by surprise but you know most people come and they want a lesson it wasn't as if he says I'll do whatever it takes I mean it was so in reality, he was the perfect student because it was almost as if, okay, I could sit, I could almost let loose with my feelings. And even with a Nick Price, Nick was very much a guy that uh, it wouldn't argue with me, but he'd, 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 he'd seriously debate things with me. So we sort of worked around certain things with Nick. But with, uh, 
Nick Faldo, it was almost as if, okay, let's start over here. It was almost like, you know, Jack Nick was going to Jack Grout for a lesson at the beginning of a year where he said, okay, treat me like a beginner. I want to go through the grip, the posture, the backswing, the downswing, the finish, et cetera, et cetera. So I said, okay. He said, so what do you think? I said, well, look, if, you know, you've got, to, you've got to swing out of the 70s. Okay, you've got the old Johnny Miller reverse C going there. And it's <laughs> You've got great rhythm. I mean, you've got a great short game. I mean, let's look at the, the positive side of things. But I think, you know, we, we really need to make your swing more of a body-oriented swing because, uh, you know, it's very much a hand-and-arm type swing. You've got high hands. You sort of slide. You go back and under. And it's like, you know, it's just like there's, you're not going to have the control with the irons or the ball flight you want. And, uh, you know, because he was a very, you know, the thing is with, with Nick Faldo, he – I could never figure out what his strong sensory system was. I hmm. mean, for most people, you can figure out, okay, they're either visual, they're, they're kinesthetic, they're, you know, I mean, we all have a little bit of everything in us, whether it be audit, you know, auditory or whatever hmm. the case may be. But, you know, he, it was like he, he just, he was, he had, he was a tremendous, he had a lot of feel about what he, want, uh, what he did. And so he was always clicking and making noises. There was a rhythm to it. So the one thing we, we really made sure we didn't do was really, destroy his rhythm because I thought, well, the one thing that one thing he needs to keep. So we went about it whereby we talked about in terms of getting his swing more rounded rather than as steep. So that we worked very hard initially on getting a more more rotation in the backswing to get the club on a shallower plane instead of that big steep lift that he had. We we worked obviously in, in tune with sort of getting the body in a more wound up position because he would sort of almost get it where his arms would lift. I wouldn't say reverse, but it was sort of a bordering on reverse. That was interesting when all the stack and tilt stuff came out. Mm -hmm. Nick Price, where they asked him, said, have you ever tried stack and tilt? He said, you know what, guys, I've been trying my whole life to get out of it. So that was Nick. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, as we say, I mean, not that I – you know, belittle the stack and tilt. So I think every 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 methodology has a merits pace in, in the involvement of coaching and teaching. But anyway, getting back to Nick, so we worked very hard on on establishing, uh, say, a more rounded plane, and and in and coinciding that with trying to get his body much stronger base, using his legs to sort of support his backswing. Not 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 you know, in the old days, you look at all the old knee action there. Even Jack Nicklaus. I mean, I mean, I know. You know, Brandon Chambly is sort of now into, oh, right, let's get that left foot raising off the ground. And said, well, to me, that's like if it comes off, it comes off as a result of your rotation rather than just trying to lift it up. I mean, sure. very few swings are like Payne Stewart these days. You know, if you're back in the day, if you look at his swing. And so so we got him sort of much more grounded. I mean, that was sort of stuff that I did in the early years to get him more grounded and to really – you know, we we did. You know, we used a lot of drills and exercises. I mean, we used beach balls, you know, between the knees to sort of get the squat and the sit. Because I love that. I love the Sam Snead sort of uh, uh, initiation to the downswing. Just the, just the way that he was able to sort of sit and squat and let everything gather before he actually rotated through. So the whole swing became a lot more rotary and the less, a lot less sort of up and down and underneath. And so. And it took a while because he was uh, he was a perfectionist. And we actually said at the beginning, it was really ironic, that we said, uh, okay, this is probably going to take a couple of years to get to where you want to get to. And I said, he said, I don't care. I don't care how badly I played. And he did. He played really poorly for a number of months. I mean, it was like, you know, the second year, things started to get a little bit. I mean, I don't think we, you could do today what we did back then. There's just no way. There's just too much on it. I mean, with you know, top 50 in the world and contracts, I mean, you know, somebody – 
goes out to lunch for two years, it's like you pretty much write them off these days. But I mean, but he, he was like bound and determined. I mean, it was like, I mean, he hit balls. I mean, it all credit to Nick Boy. I tell you what, you know, we're in the heat of the summer in, in Florida and people who live down in this neck of the woods know what it's like with the humidity. I mean, he was hitting at least five or 600 balls a day. I mean, and then he'd go out and play the odd tournament and not have much success. And in the meantime, you know, he was getting, he uh, and I, to, to a large extent, were getting grilled back by the British press. What's happening to Faldo? Why is he doing this? You know, who's this unknown coach he's working with and blah, 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 blah. You know, so he was really getting castigated to the nth, nth degree. And so, you know, finally, I mean, we started to see a little bit of a, a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel. And uh, it literally, it was it was in it was in April, two years. Okay, we started in May, June, so it was literally two years. And I, it was it was one defining point. I said, Nick, I said, you know what? I mean, you know, we don't constantly look at sort of before and afters. And I said, uh, look how different your swing looks. And look at the ball flight. I mean, it, was, it would have been nice to have Trackman back in those days to be able to actually see the amount of spin and to, the, and to see how the path had, had improved, et cetera, how his, hands, how his hands were lower through impact. I mean, it would have been really nice to sort of be able to measure those. I mean, we did the best we could with 2D video, but anyhow. And so I remember there was one, there was a tournament Opposite the Masters, I think they call it the Magnolia Classic, okay? It was like a second-rate tournament, which, you know, the players that didn't qualify for the Masters played it. So he went out there, and uh, the, the last call I gave to him, I said, Nick, you've got to do me one favor. I said, you know, you're a perfectionist. This swing looks great. We've got to get some softness and make sure, because that's part of your whole swing is the softness. So I said, I want you to soften your arms as much as you can, okay? I want... We always, I always use the term, I want like cooked spaghetti, okay? You don't have to grip it loosely, but I want those arms soft. And it was amazing, that one key thought, it, he went up there and he finished second. There was a fellow called David Ogren who, who won it, but Nick finished second. And from then on, he just took off. He went over, I think, three weeks later, he went and won the Spanish Open, and then he actually won at Muirfield in 1987. So we're... It was almost like it was really ironic. It was almost two years to the day that this thing that this thing started to uh, you know really uh, take off. That's fascinating. Can I can I interject with a, a very nuanced question? That session in which right before the event you asked Nick to soften his arms, aka cooked spaghetti, giving him that visual and that kinesthetic sensation, in also aligned with what you'd done prior to that, the compare contrast, the A B comparison that gave him possibly some satisfaction that he'd come a long way and he'd put distance between the old self and the new self and the new self had quote unquote gotten it right via no shortcuts. Do you think that was enough of a boost in his confidence that then produced the run of golf that followed for many years after? Oh, no doubt. No, no question about it because it was like, you could see he was close. The fact that he when we were practicing and going out and playing, he would, he would have control over the ball. You know, he was hitting low, highs, draws, fades, three-quarter shots. I mean, it was like he sort of had it on command, but he, he couldn't quite pull it off in a tournament. And it was like, and it was frustrating to him and to me. He said, man, I know I'm so close. I'm so close. And it was almost as if that, I don't know, that it gave him the confidence. It, it released the pressure. And it was like, hey, that's all I have to do? Yeah, that's it, Nick. Everything else is great. And from there on, hey, the rest is history. Yeah, swimming downstream, right? 
You mentioned many things in the elaborate, and I thank you for being elaborate with that, the story of evolution of Nick Faldo from good to great to world-class and then beyond into best class. And it's a conversation that I have with other peers in coaching and I also have with players. And it's a players that's uh, centered around the concept of separating skills. You'd mentioned attitude, Faldo's attitude of I'll do whatever it takes, the curiosity that Nick Price would bring to your coaching where he would question stuff. You'd mentioned Jack Nicholas to Jack Grout demonstrating the beginner's mind. Look, start with me from scratch like wet concrete and shape me at the beginning of a season in such a way as I know that I'll play my best golf. You'd also mentioned Nick Faldo's mastery mindset. I want to get it right without shortcuts. And lastly, when shit was being thrown at both of you from the press, the media, whoever, this self-image that was protected by Kevlar, which is the attitude that you, let's say, transmitted to the haters or at least protected the dialogue and the confidence in what you guys were doing. I would consider all of those falling under the category of necessary skills to develop, to separate you from mediocrity, to go from good to great to world-class. As I speak, or as I say that phrase, good to great to world-class, to best in class, as Nick Faldo was, is there anything else that comes to mind? I just think that his determination and, I mean, to some extent, self-centeredness, you know, because he, he was a guy that really didn't care what anybody else thought. Look, you know, Nick is a great commentator now, and I think if he'd be the first to admit that say, he, he, list, he wished he had a slightly different approach to people, to individuals, to his peers when he was playing, but that's really what made him tick. I mean, I, I, I remember distinctly your countryman, Ian Baker Finch, when I was working with, with Ian in the sort of late 80s and early 90s, and uh, this was this was at St Andrews in 1990, and they were drawn together in the last round. And Nick had a, you know, I don't know what he had, maybe a three or four shot lead or something. But anyway, and I, and I said I said to Ian, I said, do me a favour. I said, don't get upset today because Nick will not even know that you're there. He is so focused on his own game. If if he says good shot to you, I'd be completely and utterly surprised. And lo and behold, you know, Finchie came to me after he said, you know, you're absolutely right. I, I, he, it, it was as if, as if I was not even there. And I said, yeah, well, you know, that's the way he operates. And he, you know, he was so, I mean, it was, I mean, his focus and attention to detail. I mean, you know, he and Fanny, when they got together and the way that they, you know, they, they planned and prepared for rounds on, on a golf course. I mean, it's like, you know, we know today, you know, with all the books and what have you that they've got and the way they're able to sort of prepare and plan uh, on a golf course. But I mean, he, you know, he was doing this sort of manually back in the eighties. I mean, so he was just, he, he, his attention to detail. I mean, it was, you know, I mean, every Monday morning he would file his nails. I mean, it was like, it was like, you know, it was, it was like, he was so routine. He was so, he, he was so organized and it was like he, you know, I think he sort of set the stage. I mean, you, you, I, you know, I, I, I think back to his career. I mean, the biggest mistake that, that Nick Faldo ever made was actually coming over to play the tour in the U.S. full time. I mean, in, in retrospect, I mean, we looked at it at the beginning, thought, well, maybe this is a good idea because the greens in Europe at the time, you know, they they still are a little inconsistent compared to what you play on the, on the PGA tour. But, you know, when honestly, Cameron, when, when Nick would come over and play, ostensibly he'd use every tournament prior to majors as warm-ups. I mean, it, 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 
it, to him, it was no big deal. You know, if he played well in them, great. If he didn't, hey, he was just getting prepared and ready for the majors. That's all he was doing. And when he came out, when he when he came over, I mean, he had this aura about him. I mean, players would literally stand and watch him practice. I mean, and hit balls, and it's like, man, this guy's like a god, you know. <laughs> And it was as it was as if when he came over here on a full time basis, and you know, I think the first tournament he played in was the, you know, as it was then the Bob Hope, you know, in the desert, right? And you're playing five golf courses, and it's like you know, just smash it out there as far as you can and putt well. I mean, on you know, shortish courses, and he, whatever he finished, I don't know, 40th or something. I mean, it was almost as if he lost that aura. And uh, I think he felt it. That was really sort of, I would say, I wouldn't say the start of, you know, of his decline because there were a couple of other issues as well. But, but it was amazing that, um, you know, it's all about that aura and that confidence. So I think that uh, I just sensed when, when Nick was over here full time and the players, I, I wouldn't say lost respect for him, because they obviously didn't. But, I mean, it was almost as if he, he had this godlike sort of uh, – aura about him in the early stages when he's you know i mean you gotta remember he i mean he was very close to winning the u.s open a couple of times too i i remember the year that uh curtis strange won up at uh at brookline and uh i mean i think i remember nick that week hit 64 greens in regulation which i mean at the u.s open is it's ridiculous yeah but so uh so he had you know opportunity had a good chance to win at medina when halo win one and so so, I mean, he was, uh, he was sort of ranked, I mean, when you think in terms of, it, it was very interesting at the time because um, there was a great rivalry between him and Greg Norman, you know, Greg Norman being the swashbuckling sort of uh, charismatic player, you know, smashed it a long way. And, you know, Nick being the sort of the consummate chess player, shall we say, who worked out his rounds and, you know, hit it from A to B and knew where to hit it, knew where not, not where to hit it. I mean, it was... It, it, two contrasting characters completely but uh, you know, I think that's really what makes great rivalries in the game really Moving to a question on virtuosos you've you've had many a youth player show up at your academy and demonstrate just an amazing prowess to do what they want to do with a golf ball exceptional talent exceptional skill level at a very early age uh, two that come to mind uh, Michelle Wee and Lydia Ko can you use either one of those an example or another player as an example on your first thoughts and how certain you were and and what i guess provided you that certainty that surety that that person would develop into the exceptional history making player that they uh, would yeah probably i'd I'd add somebody else into the mix too was who i'd worked with for many a year from a young age was charles howe Mm -hmm. there is something about a player that once again instinct takes over when you look at a player and you can sense and you can look into their eyes and sort of read them to a point where there's something special about this player. I mean, yes, we, we have good young juniors, but what is, what is different about these players? I mean, we've seen, all right, they've probably maybe had some decent results up to that point in time, but the, there's something about the determination and the, and the look and the, just the way they talk and their, their confidence and their self-esteem. I mean, I, so I, I look back at a Charles Howell, who's really in his career, I mean, Having said how you know what a great play he was at a young age, I mean he's still 
in my opinion, very much an underachiever. I mean, he's been, a, been an ATM machine. He's certainly made an unbelievable living out of the game. And, uh, but he was a, a tremendous ball striker at a very young age, 13 and 14. And he was just, just absolutely focused, had this little skinny kid there with glasses. And it was like, you know, the, the kid would stay all day there just hitting balls. I mean, you had to drag him off the, off the, off the practice tee. It was like, and, uh, you know, I think probably to some extent, maybe his short game and wedge play stuff because he just loved hitting balls. It was like, that was, that was his thing just to be able to strike it and, uh, you know, at, at a at a young age, he was an unbelievable ball striker. And then you sort of, then you know, you get when I first saw Michelle Wee. I mean, my my mouth just dropped. I thought, I don't believe this. This is a 13 year old girl who's a got X shafts in her irons, and she's hitting these two irons up in the sky. And I'm going, oh my goodness! I've never, I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's like you know, never mind for a girl. I mean, for a for a boy. I mean, at 13, I'd never seen anything like this. I mean. And I, I honestly, I mean, all the talk about her playing with the, the men, uh, really, I, I think there was, I mean, there was uh, credence to that because of the fact that, I mean, she hit it 300. People, you know, back then, I mean, look, you're getting the odd girl now that, that does it, uh, Lexi, et cetera, et cetera. But, I mean, she was hitting it 300 you know, with sort of older equipment, as we know now. But, I mean, I, I just looked at some of the places when she plays at, say, Palm Springs at the ANA, I just looked at some of the places where she used to hit it when she was 14, 15, and where she hits it now. She's probably 30 yards longer back then, you know? So she really was a phenom. I mean, and she, I mean, I, I think, you know, obviously you look back and think, what could you have done differently when with all the injuries? And I think that's one of the things we've really got to be aware of is with these young kids that, you know, we don't get so carried away that we want these kids to be world beaters when they're 15, 16, 17, because, they may pay the price down the road with injuries and so on and so forth. And uh, so I think that's really what we're seeing with Michelle now over the years. You know, she's had so many injuries. And I think some of that dates back to the time when, you know, when she was five and six years old, hitting ball for five or six hours off mats. And I think, you know, there's a, there's a lot of science going into now into thinking in terms of, right, this is not necessarily great for young, young bodies to be able to do that, you know, day after day after day. So, but she was, she really was, I mean, she made the game look easy. I mean, when you, you don't, you don't say that very often about players, but she made the game look so easy. I mean, it was just so easy for her to whip it out there, you know, in the 290 range and then hit wedges. And I mean, and so it was just, it, as I say, I think if uh, maybe her career be managed, but I always say, you know, one of the, probably the greatest manager of their kids in sport was the, the Venus and Serena Williams father. And because, you know, he, he, he deliberately kept them out of a lot of tournaments. You know, you always hear, well, they've got to learn to win. Well, that's, that's part of it. I agree. But the fact is that, you know, they, they, they practiced, but they didn't over-practice. They played, they didn't overplay. They played a few tournaments, they played just enough tournaments. They didn't, they didn't get to a point where, hey, they, you know, at the age of 25, they were done. I mean, you look at them, I mean, still, I mean, you know, they're still a threat and, Serena still is, and you know what? She's 38 now, and mm -hmm. so I mean, look at these young players. I mean, she's playing a 19-year-old in the final. So yeah, she didn't win, but the fact is, I mean, she's still a threat. So I mean, there's no ways that her career would have lasted that long if she'd actually burnt herself out physically and mentally at a young age. So I think we have to be really, really careful. And I, I you know, I see to some extent the same with with Lydia. Uh, as I say, you know, she was a, you know. A, I mean, uh, we love having her around. She's a great girl. And I, I just think sometimes, you know, and that part of 
what we have to do is try to educate parents. I have to be careful what I say here because they say it's still it still grates me to some extent. I think you know sometimes parents are sometimes a little naive as far as what their kids should be doing, especially if the, if the parents aren't golfers themselves. They might have brought the they might have brought the youngster into the game, but I mean if you're going to have a coach, why not leave it up to the coach? I mean I don't see you know watching tennis, which I'm a big tennis fan, looking at Rafa Nadal's father, he doesn't get involved with coaching. So, I mean, why do these people get so involved with it? Hey, leave it up to the coach. If the coach is not doing a good job, then find another coach. You know, not every three weeks, but I mean, you know, periodically, you know, if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. But I mean, it's it's all about, to me, stability, getting organized. And uh, I always say, you know, I mean, look, I haven't had many players leave me when they're sort of number one in the world because I I don't think there's an infinity ranking. I don't, I'm not sure they brought that one out yet. But uh, so uh, she must have been doing a lot of things right. And uh, there were a lot of things behind the scenes that weren't quite right. And uh, I, I didn't agree with But uh, Look, I mean, it was it was fun working with her. I mean, it was uh, it was great at the time. And look, she had a phenomenal start to her career. Her career probably, if not matching it, I would say was slightly better than Tiger's. If you look at the sort of win ratio and major ratio in the first couple of years of her career. It was, it was an immense, immense strike rate. I, I certainly agree in the advice that you uh, just gave relative to parents interacting with athletes and uh, playing the role, the appropriate role, I would add, in the uh, team. The elements around the nucleus, the player being the nucleus, uh, couldn't be more echo my sentiment as well. Far too often I find parents coloring outside the boundaries of what they should be doing and uh, interjecting in a manner that uh, disturbs rather than advances the development of said player, that said player being their child. And it's ludicrous in my mind when you're asking for professional guidance that you would then grab the steering wheel and decide that you're not only going to be the person controlling left right turns but you're also going to be the person that's hitting the brake and tapping the accelerator that should be the job of the athlete and also the coach so staying in uh, lanes is a conversation that i think uh, parents of athletes in every sport uh, need to hear a lot uh, it's, it's something that they can't hear enough of well i agree and as i say it's, it's a difficult situation look the, the parents they love their kids. They want to see what's best for them. But I, I just think that sometimes, you know, that there's, there's way too much uh, involvement. Uh, I say, I think, you know, you get to a certain point where, hey, parents can take their kids so far in the game. But it's like, hey, to get to that next level, they're going to need, they need, you know, a professional approach. And so, you, I mean, parents and, and children can get way too emotional about it. I mean, I think as a coach and a player, even though we're close to the player, there's not quite that same emotional attachment as the parents have. And we also have to realize, look, there's a lot of money in the game now. And they feel that, look, it's like, and, you know, a lot of, a lot of kids support their parents. And uh, so it, it's, a, it's a quite a complex situation. And also, and it brings in the cultural uh, aspect, too, because in certain cultures, you know, the Asian culture in particular, parents are very involved in their child's upbringing and what they do in the future and so on and so forth. So, but we know that golf is a whole different animal. And so... Yeah, you know, these these players are walking on a very fine uh, sort of tightrope, if you will. I mean, you you look at a player, I mean, you you look, you look at great players and look at talent that's gone to waste. And I, I I think of sort of Anthony Kim. I mean, and I know Anthony very very well. He used to work with Adam Schreiber, who worked for me for a number of years. And I I I, 
I partook in some of his uh, coaching sessions. And I mean, there's a kid who was, man, did that guy have some talent. But, you know, I think at times, I think parents get so involved, they don't give their kids the grounding that they need in order to be well-balanced, well-rounded. Because, I mean, look, we're, it's, it's not only golf that you that you're playing in this day and age. I mean, it's like, you know, it's not like they play 24 hours a day. Well, I guess some of them do. I mean, all well, their parents try to force them to do it. But for the most part, I mean, look, you've got, you've got to live life too. You've got to be part of the community. And you've got to be part of the world. And so uh, there's a lot more to learn than just purely, you know, getting the club on playing on the backswing. <laughs> Couldn't agree more. We'll move on. But I just would add there to the end there that – Many a wrong turn has been taken. Many a pothole has been hit along that along the developmental highway of um, turning a youth player into a world class professional that uh, is podium is like finding themselves in first, second, third in and uh, events around the world and professional tours. And we've hit on many there: the undue pressure to perform, the maladapted lifestyles of, of youth athletes, where they're no longer kids and their identity is all occupied or tied up in in the sport itself and uh, parents taking away autonomy, autonomy outside of uh, the control that the athlete and the coach should have. And we could have a whole podcast episode exploring many other uh, directions, but wanting to kind of put a bow on this or at least finish it up in respect of your time. And it's been amazing by the way, by digging a, a little bit into your playbook, the things that you do to produce gains in performance that aren't necessarily the X's and O's of teaching. You know, we've talked at length about instruction and you mentioned the difference between instruction and coaching and we can cause a person to change style such that the ball starts to behave, but it's a different animal altogether when you're trying to instill in a person confidence and also help them deal with pressure. Now they exist probably on that same continuum, meaning there's a lot of crossover, like a Venn diagram, when we're talking about confidence and pressure. Do you have one or two things in your coaching career that you feel are high mileage plays, things that are really effective in helping uh, your players deal with those high stress moments, the, the moments of pressure where they have to bring their best performing self to them? Well, I, I think we know that, uh, look, that players that are, successful in this game are able to perform at, at a very high level at, at, at a particular time. I mean, it, and it seems to be too that players who uh, are really exceptional and really stand out uh, in the crowd, shall we say, are really players who are able to move into another gear. And some of that is inbuilt. Look, it, it's, we, we know that characters and profiles are formed at a very young age. And so, I mean, if you look at, I mean, if you look at, Tiger, for instance, I mean, look, his dad instilled in him a winning attitude from the age of two. So, you know, it, it's it's a it's something that when you look at, I mean, I think every player is different. I think that's that's the thing from a coach's perspective. You really have to get to know your player, how they tick, how they work. I mean, I have I have four or five psychologists who I really like, and I, I try to match up players who I feel will blend with this certain type of psychologist. I First, I have a, a, a guy who, his name is Jim Lair, who's a very, very well-known sports psychologist who really now is a motivational speaker with, with Fortune 500 companies. And I've, I've got him hooked up with a couple of players because I think he's more of a, he's more of a life coach rather than just purely, you know, sports psychology 101, you know, get behind the ball, visualize the shot, blah, blah, blah. I mean, it, it's right because, you know, you look at, you know, golf, 
Golf's a tough sport. It, it, I mean, it, it's always at the back of your mind. If, if a player's not playing well, even if they take time off, it's at the back of their mind. It's like it's very, very hard to maintain that level. I mean, if you, you've achieved a certain level, everybody, including the player themselves, expects to reach that on a, on a regular basis. But we know how hard this damn game is. And it, 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 it sort of tests every faculty that we have. And so... I mean, I think the more normal that people can keep their lives, I mean, hey, people who get married, people who have kid, people, I mean, there's all sorts of different triggers that sort of get people to looking at, looking at it as uh, looking from the outside in rather than from the inside out because we can get so wrapped up in this game. I mean, even amateurs, I mean, let's face it. I mean, look, moods are affected by how you play. If you're playing well, you know, you're not, you know, you come off a, a decent round of golf and you've just, you know, you shot, you know, you're a 10 handicap and you just broke 80, you know, you're not likely to go home and kick the dog in frustration. <laughs> you're happy. I mean, golf, golf lends itself. It's, it's a, it's a mood changer. It, it, so it's, I mean, there's a lot of things that go into it. It's not, it's, it's a very difficult question just to say, okay, how am I going to instill confidence in this? Because you look at a player and you say, man, this, what is the matter with this player? This player is swinging well. I mean, they've got it down. They, it's like, hey, things are happening well in practice. They seem to be happy at home. And then all of a sudden, it's just, it doesn't happen. It's mm-hmm. like, it's so hard to sort of put your finger. I mean, if everybody could put their finger on exactly what it was or what it is when they're playing great. I mean, as we know, Cameron, you know, players write things down. They have their feelings. They put it on their cell phone. Okay, remind me about this. Do this. Do that. I mean, and yet, you know, you're doing the same thing, and a month later, it's not there. What is it? What, what, what sort of, what's the secular thing that creates these issues? And so, I mean, all we can really do is, you know, as a, the, the, I love that American saying, okay, stick to the process, okay? And you've got to be able to, okay, I mean, I always say to every young player, so look, every, everybody's formula for success is different. You have to find your own formula. You have to find your own recipe. When you found that recipe, yes, you may learn a couple of things from a different from a from a player or a coach or a advisor, whatever the case may be, and you might add it to your repertoire. But you have to find your own formula for success. Your formula for success is probably going to be completely different to to Joe Blow over here. I mean, it's, and so once you found that formula, you really need to stick it, and you need to. If you look at the play, I mean, look at look at a Tom Watson through the years, the way that he goes about it, not. I mean, not only swing-wise, but his life. I mean, it's like, talk about consistency through the decades. I mean, unbelievable. And, you know, the, the greats seem to have that. And they just stick at it and say, okay, and wait. And, and the attitude is obviously such a big part of it because you've got to wait for this thing to turn. I mean, it's just like, hey, it's going to turn. You've been there before. As long as you keep doing the same things and we see things. I mean, look, I'm sure. I, I mean, Look, I mean, I, I consider you a friend. I mean, look, I'm sure... Jordan's gone through some frustrating periods of how we, compared to how he played a couple of years ago, week in and week out. But, I mean, all credit, all kudos to you guys. I mean, you're sticking at the same thing. Hey, we'll get it. Just be patient. Look, you know, you, your putting's great. You're, you know, the ball striking's going to come around. And, you know, as they say, what, you know, form is temporary and class is permanent, the mm-hmm. old act. But, I mean, it's it, you know, and so it's, it's trying to convince players not to make this wholesale change. Okay, I've got to change. I've got to change. It's like it's so easy in this day and age. There's so much information out there, and there's so many people buzzing around in people's ears. What's the matter? I mean, the, the social media aspect. I mean, it's like, oh my goodness. I mean, 
Fortunately, back in the day when I was with uh, Nick Faldo back in the 80s, I mean, we didn't have all that. If we had, I don't know what would have happened. But, um, <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was enough criticism without social media. If there was, I'm, my God, I mean, and you can't get away from it. And it's, uh, it's, it's so difficult. And so you just have to have the strength of your convictions, have a good team around you, you know, keep real, as they say, be happy, be grateful for the things that you have and keep, keep focusing on these things. And, and eventually things will turn. I say, it's just, I mean, you know, Jack Nicholas, I mean, look how many second place finishes that in his career. It's like, you know, so if he got upset every time he finished second, I mean, you know, he probably wouldn't have had all the wins he had. So it's like, you know, it's, it's a very, it's a very demanding game as we know. And in the end, as they, even, even as much as we know, as much uh, technology as we have, there's still, to a large extent, there's still a bit of trial and error in everything that we do and finding, okay, this works, this doesn't work, mm-hmm. this, this doesn't work. And I say, I think it's like, you know, all you can do is, hey, give it your best. And if you can say at the end of the day, hey, I've given it my best, or at the end of the year, I've given it my best, okay, it's going to get better. And I mean, it's, it's always looking at, the, looking at the glass as being half full rather than half empty. Amazing. Led, there's no better mic drop moment to finish this episode up. The value that just came out of the last hour and 40 minutes, you can't give a value to it. You're a wealth of information, sir, and I really appreciate it. You sort of uh, reminded me of certain things that I thought I'd forgotten, so it's good. Thank you for <laughs> the little job. The memory belt there, so it's great. <laughs> Finally, where can people learn more if the coach is listening and they want to know more about the professional development program that you're releasing or have released? And if players or parents are out there and they want to learn more, could we direct them to the socials or the webs? Yeah, it's, it's all on social media now. It's on our website and they can get a, a Ledbetter Golf University. And it's, uh, it's fun. Look, it's like it's uh, one of those things that, look, I mean, as I said, you know, I mean, as coaches and teachers and whether it be high school teachers, I mean, just learning a little bit about it. And, uh, I mean, it's a very simple approach. Uh, it's, it's uh, you know, I'm, I'm excited about it because it, it allows me to give a little bit back to the game that's been so good to me through the years. And so I'm excited about that and be able to sort of help to share, you know, some of my knowledge over the years. And um, I said, we've got some great people involved too who, who are giving their knowledge with it. Well, I think I still owe you dinner from last times or the last Ashes series. And now I owe you two dinners for this amazing podcast. So next time we're in the same city, let's make sure that we make that happen. Absolutely. All right. Thanks so much, Cameron. Have a great off season here too. Yeah, you too. Thanks very much for listening to this episode. If you want to learn more about Altus Performance, go check out altusperformance.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Team Altus and Instagram at Altus Performance. Also, thanks to Cordy Walker for his wonderful production work on this and coming episodes of Earn Your Edge. 